Father, we give you all of the praise and the glory for the works, the mighty works that you do among us. The greatest of which is the sending of the Son and our Lord Jesus Christ, you coming according to the will of the Father and accomplishing for us redemption, purchasing for us not only a salvation but an inheritance that we will share with you for all of eternity. And Lord, we must have a side of this in order to be faithful here on earth. We must be upheld by your spirit on these truths in order to stand against the tides of all that would resist you. And we ask you for grace. We thank you for those you've raised up. Men whose name we know like Martin Luther, whom you raised up, whom you unfolded to him the glories of your word and shaped him and molded him and all that he was to fulfill your will for him on this earth and for the church and Lord, the many countless of martyrs who have died throughout the ages who did not count their life precious even to the end that they may gain life in Christ. Names that we'll never know this side of heaven but all eternity will, will declare as those who glorified your name through their faithfulness to you. And Lord, we want to be counted among those. The world may never know our names but you do. Because you called us by name to yourself. And Lord, keep us faithful to the end. We look to you for these things. And Lord, even use in part that encouragement, the things we'll consider this morning. Be our teacher, our encourager, our comforter, our glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, before we get started, let me make uh, just one uh, brief note here as I was reminded this morning of a little email misinformation. Uh, that was uh, the marriage and intimacy class is not on November 11th. It's going to be on January 11th, uh, possibly January 10th even. We might change that to Mondays instead of Tuesdays. Uh, so a slight housekeeping thing, but it's January uh, 10th we'll begin uh, that class. So uh, again, many have already signed up, but if you haven't and you have children, please uh, let us know that uh, soon so that we can make arrangements. The sooner we know uh, how many were people we have and how many children that we need to make accommodations for, uh, then the sooner that we can get working on it and, uh, and let it go smoothly. With that being said, we're going to consider this morning, uh, again, as we're making our ascent to the book of Revelation, another message that's meant to be a, a broad presentation of the topic of eschatology and the way that it plays out in our lives. We, of course, looked over the last couple of weeks at the very big picture of God's plan, God's purpose of how from creation all the way to the end of him creating us to have fellowship with him, creating for us to image him on this earth, to extend his kingdom for his glory on this earth how man forfeited that, that, uh, that privilege and now we live under the conditions of the curse but how God has from all the way from the garden to the end enacted a plan to restore what was lost by men and all to his eternal glory and at the center of that plan is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the end of that plan is being with Christ and with the Father on a new heavens and a new earth in the very imagery of the garden and the temple which has been the picture that God himself established all the way throughout of Scripture to picture our intimate union with Him. This morning I want to look broadly at another topic, and namely eschatology. And the title of it, of course, is A Spirituality of Hope, Holiness, and Endurance. And we'll actually add a fourth one at the end. It's the surprise point <laughs> at the end. But it is this. It is to look at eschatology and, and, and just... 
uh, take a brief moment to consider how does our knowledge of the end of all things and the big picture of God's purposes in this world, how should that affect our lives as Christians? How should that affect us spiritually? We've all known people who are fascinated by eschatology and fascinated by the end things and fascinated by all of the details of how things are going to work out in the end and what are the connections that we see with our days here. And there's a place for all of that. But scripture reminds us that this is not revealed to us simply for our curiosity. This is not revealed to us simply so that we can have a fascination with future things. We're all prone to that, of course. It's revealed to us so that we might live in this world with hope, live in this world pursuing holiness, live in this world so that we might have endurance through all of the difficulties and prevail to the end, prevail victorious in the one who accomplish that victory for us, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is in the heart of God's people, and there has been from the beginning, a longing for things to be restored to what they should be. Ever since the fall deep within the heart of God's redeemed, there's a longing for the way, the, for the way things that were meant to be at the very beginning of creation, of why God made us to bear his image and to live in this world. There is a longing in the heart of God's people for unhindered fellowship with him, our maker and redeemer, to have the complete freedom from our sins and the freedom to righteousness and the freedom from that internal corruption and the misery in the world so that we could live in the bask in the light of his glory and happiness and holiness and all of those things. There is, if we were to say that in short, within all of God's people, a sense of hope, a sense of hope, a sense of longing A hope that God will make things right again inside of us and in his world. A hope that knows that this is not the way things will always be. And this hope that God's people have is a hope that should shape us. It should mold us to be what we were meant to be ultimately in Christ. Let me read this quote to you. Uh, Unfortunately, I'm sorry, it won't be up here. I didn't. That was my fault. Oh, as I said, (laughs) if you will follow the quote that is on your screen right now. Kevin's the man. Anyway, here it is. Listen to this. It captures it well. It says, It was not primarily Paul's gratitude for what Christ had done for him in the past that sustained him, but his hope for the future. What God has done for us in the past is the foundation of our faith, not its focus. Looking back, we gain confidence in God for the future. It is this hope for the future, whether it be for this afternoon, as we depend on God to protect us in the midst of the temptations and suffering to come, or for our deathbed, as we depend on God to deliver us into his presence for all eternity, that empowers God's people not to lose confidence, but to live for Christ. In other words, the focus of the Christian life, the focus of God's people, the focus of the redeemed is a future focus. It's a forward focus. It's a longing. It's a pressing on to those things for which we have been laid hold of in Christ Jesus. It is certainly grounded on the work of God in the past. That is, of course, the meditation of our heart because it, it establishes the reality of the relationship that enables us to have the confidence to look forward to what God will bring. But the focus of our lives is looking forward to the promises of God. And that is, again, the title is meant to be captured in the title. That this is a spirituality of hope as we consider the last things, a spirituality of holiness and a spirituality of endurance. They are revealed to us, these things, so that our certainty of the end would shape everything about us and strengthen us through all of the difficulties and disappointments of living in a groaning, 
creation. So we're going to consider this under four main headings. Four main headings. Okay, that clock, the battery stopped. I was like, oh no. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. Okay, it's wrong. It's, uh, it says a quarter till, but I'm going to ignore that. Anyway, there's four main headings that we'll look at here. Actually, a broken clock is like a preacher's best friend, right? Because <laughs> now I don't even have to worry about it until people just start leaving, you know, for lunch and to get their children. But that's okay. We'll, we'll try to make this here. So four main headings, four main headings, and it's this. Eschatology is the foundation of our hope as the motivation for holiness, as the bedrock for endurance, and as the catalyst for true wisdom. Now, these aren't balanced points. I just tell you ahead of time, balanced in the sense of time. We'll spend most of our time on the first two and then cover the last two a bit more quickly. But first, let's look at this. Eschatology as the foundation for our hope. Eschatology as the foundation for our hope. And what is... First, to be considered under this is that our hope is certain. We as Christians have hope, and you know this, you who are believers and who have been believers for a while, particularly that, that when we speak of hope, generally as the world speaks of hope, it's, it's a, I hope things work out, I hope I get this job, and so on and so forth. There's a, there's a level of uncertainty, a, a levelness of probability that it may not work out as I want. But when we speak of hope in terms of biblically, that's not at all what we mean. We mean a hope that is certain, a hope that is sure, a hope that is grounded in nothing less than ultimately the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so first I want to just remind us of the certainty of our hope and, and the certainty of our hope because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. As I noted before, eschatology or any thoughts about the last thing is essentially a promise. It's of things to come. It's things that will be. It's promises that God will fulfill, but it's not things that we know now. And because it is a promise and because it has a future aspect, it is the essence then of faith. It is faith. Hebrews 11.1, 1, as you remember, says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. A simple way to think of that might be it is taking these promises of God and the things that God has said he will do and bringing them into our present experiences as realities now, as truths now that we hold on to with a certainty and that direct our lives. So it's a certain hope of faith grounded in the very nature and character of God and the nature and the character of God, that is to say, then the glory of God is revealed ultimately and climactically in the person of Christ. So let me just, again, just mention these very briefly, but four, four reasons that ground, in the, that ground the certainty of our hope in Christ. And the first is this, that he has accomplished everything, God has accomplished everything necessary for the fulfillment of his promises in the work of Christ. He's accomplished everything that is necessary for him to be able to bring about his promises. Namely this, that he has satisfied his righteousness for us. He's, he's reconciled us to Christ. He has satisfied his justice in the death of Christ. He has overcome the curse of sin and the resurrection of Christ. He has sent his spirit and united his people to Christ. He has done everything that is necessary to bring about all of his promises. As a matter of fact, Romans 4.25 says this, He who was delivered over because of our transgression and was raised because of our justification. In his death, he bore our sins. He was delivered over for our transgression. In his resurrection, he vindicated his person and the work of God. He said earlier in Romans, he was declared the son of God by the resurrection. 
the Son of God who completed the work for which he came. Colossians tells us that he has already reconciled all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So the first reason we can be certain of all the promises that God's given us is because he's laid the foundation, he's made them certain through the person of work of Christ, through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension, even in his sending of the Holy Spirit. Everything has been accomplished. We're just waiting now for the fullness of it to be known. Secondly, is because in the work of Christ, God has displayed his character his, of his faithfulness, his trustworthiness. Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1.20, For as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes, therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Think about this. Thousands of years ago, God made a promise when man fell into sin. He made a promise that he would undo the works of the devil. He made a promise to them in the garden. He's actually speaking to the devil, but he made a promise that he would destroy the works of the devil. And that is exactly what he has done in Christ. Through all of the history of humanity, through all of the revelation of Scripture, through all the accounting of God's work from Genesis to Revelation, God proved faithful to his promise. He proved faithful to send one who would die for his people. Isaiah 53, 11, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. And in justifying them, he will see the fruit of his work. The way Isaiah puts it, he will see his offspring, the ones who come about as the result of his work of saved people and new humanity. God promised a Savior, and he provided a Savior. He made promises about the Savior who would come, and he fulfilled them all. And think about this. He fulfilled his promise in spite of the failure of his people, in spite of the rejection of the world, in spite of the rejection of his own covenant nation, in spite of all of that, in spite of being killed by the very people that he was in covenant with. He accomplished his purposes. He was faithful. And the sin of man and the rebellion of man could not hinder him from completing the work that he intended to do. And that's important for us to remember because with all the uncertainties that we experience now, the rise of evil, the trampling of truth in the streets, we can be confident that the same faithful God is bringing about his promise. And that, namely in the return of Jesus Christ to establish righteousness on the earth. As God was faithful to his promise to the first generation, and you can imagine the redeemed, the remnant, who through all of the chaos around them were holding on to this promise. They were holding on to this promise when the temple was destroyed. They were holding on to this promise in the exile when they were taken into a foreign land. They were holding on to this promise when they killed the prophets. But they knew God made a promise he would send a redeemer. And he did. And so it is with us. We can see the compromise of the church in many ways. We can see the rise of evil in our own nation. We can see what looks to be hopeless except for this fact that God made a promise and he will fulfill it because he is faithful. And this has to do with everything he said about the end. Thirdly, because of his power. In Christ, God displayed his infinite power. He displayed his infinite power to override every earthly and spiritual power that rises in opposition to him. Imagine that. Again, you're familiar with this. Let me remind you. In Acts chapter 4, you had everybody arrayed against the person of Christ. Every single person was sinning. There's actually a lot of illustrations of this. 
But most gloriously and climactically, it's here in the person of Christ. In Acts 4, 27, he says, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod and Pontius Pilate. That's all the political power of the Roman Empire were allied against Christ and against the Messiah. Along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, all of the religious world, everybody was against him. And what did they accomplish in all of their resistance to Christ? They accomplished this. They did whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. That's the sovereignty of God. And that, of course, is from beginning to the end of Revelation. That God accomplishes his purpose in spite of, and even in in this case, through, and in many cases, the rebellion and the rejection of man. Though all the political, religious, and spiritual power of this age were to unite against Christ, and that is, in fact, what is happening, they become only tools in God's sovereign hand to accomplish His eternal purpose. Nothing can thwart that. And His power to accomplish His purposes was displayed most gloriously and wonderfully in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let me just read one passage to you here that you're familiar with. And that's in Ephesians chapter 1. He says this, I won't read the whole passage just for time's sake, but he speaks of this in verse 19 of the surpassing greatness of his power to us who believe this power and the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ. He says this, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What is the ultimate demonstration of the power of God for all of the world to look at and to know that he is the one and he alone is the one who reigns? It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is the proof, he says in Acts, that furnishes that he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. And he has furnished proof, but he says in Acts, by raising him from the dead. The resurrection stands as the very hub at the center of our gospel proclamation that he was raised from the dead. And that is a demonstration of his power. Finally, to us as people, it is his love as well. It is his love. It is his faithfulness. It is his power. It is his love. His holy love was set on us before the foundation of the world. His love was set on us if we know him before the foundation of the world. And we can know that he will bring about what he's promised to us because of this, because he loves us. Him who is infinite in power, infinite in glory, has determined to love us and to fulfill his love to us by giving us his son and all things accomplished for us in the son. Just listen to this. Romans 8, 32 and 39. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with us free, with him freely give us all things? In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer, that is in light of all the opposition and all the persecution and all the suffering of God's people. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And so we have confidence in his power. We have confidence in his love. We have confidence in his faithfulness and we have confidence in what he has said he's accomplished for us in Christ. He will not fail to bring about everything that he has said that he will bring about. 
So if we have this confidence, how then does it play out into our life? How does this foundation and certainty in Christ play out in our life? Let me give you just a few here. First of all, obviously, it provides the anchor for our hope. It's the rock that we stand on. It's the certainty that we, that we rest in. And first of all, when we face a hostile culture, when we stay, face a hostile culture, and I'm just going to mention some of these. I'm not going to say a whole lot on them. But when we face a hostile culture, we have a culture, well, every culture is shaped by its ideologies and particularly it's hostile to the truth when those ideologies stand in opposition to everything that is true and everything that is holy. And if a culture is shaped by those kind of ideologies, then of course whatever is true and whatever is holy is going to be an object of its hatred and its persecution. Of his own day, The prophet Isaiah said to a people who were ripe and being prepared for judgment, he said this in Isaiah chapter 5, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. He knew what it was to live in a culture that was hostile to God. He knew what it was as a righteous prophet of God to live among people who hated him and the message that he had of God. This isn't new then to God's people, but certainly something that we're seeing ourselves in our own nation. When our elite and our policymakers, and it seems like everything that wields influence on our culture is increasingly open in its evil, in its hatred of everything that belongs to God, everything that would exalt God. We exalt everything that God hates. We exalt as virtue in a culture the right to kill a child all the way up to birth. We say that is good, that is morally right. That is one of the most morally right things that we could spend our energy and our time on. We claim that it's right to rid ourselves of the encumbrance of marriage so that we can have sexual freedom in every form and shape no matter what harm it does and how it damages the family and our world and individual lives. That's virtuous. So that we teach pornographic material to children in kindergarten. We say that's virtuous. As a matter of fact, I'm going to run a campaign on that and try to get votes for that very thing. We destroy the role of parents into the lives of children. We destroy the family. And we could go on and down this list in a variety of ways, whether we look at it economically, whether we look at it socially, whether we look at it internationally, whatever we want to do, we live in a culture in our own times that is increasingly hostile to everything that is true and righteous and holy. But that's not new to God's people. So how do we live in the midst of that? We live because we know how the end of the story is. We live because we know God's people have always endured these things. We live because we know him who sits on the throne. And so we are not hopeless. We are not hopeless. We know the end and we know that we in the end will be revealed with him in glory. We will be shown to be on the right side of history. If we could use that term. We will be shown to be on the right side of God's plan and God's purposes. We will be shown to have made the right and the wise choice who belong to Christ. And we have to take confidence in that. The knowing the end helps us to stand firm in a hostile culture. It helps with all of the, the struggles that come through life. And, and even with things as common but as difficult as physical consequences of the curse. Again, all creation groans under the curse. This includes natural evil and moral evil, but even natural evil can bring hardship into the lives of all of humanity and God's people. It reminds us of our weakness. 
When we understand eschatology, when we understand the end of it, it's what gives those who have to struggle with lifelong burdens hope. It gives hope. It gives them strength to carry on. Let me just mention one verse to you. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says this, words you're familiar with. He says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Now, the overall context, of course, when Paul says this, is, his, is in relation to his suffering for the gospel, and his body is being beaten down. It's being persecuted. He knows what it's like to be weak. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be threatened. He knows what it's like to be stoned, to spend a night, nights in the ocean, and so on and so forth. He knows that. But he's building that here in this first part on a general principle, which is simply to emphasize this, that the bodies that we have are temporary. They're meant to expire. These are bodies of weakness, and they are decaying, whether by age, whether by disease, whether by persecution. They are being worn down, and they will expire. But he says he doesn't make that the focus of his intention, but rather that he looks at the things which, not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And some people have lifelong struggles, handicaps at birth, disease early on at age, an accident that has scarred them and made life difficult for the rest of their time here on earth. It's just harder for people with chronic pain or for weakness. But knowing the end helps give strength again. For a believer, there is a great deal of comfort in the hope and the promise of the resurrection. Imagine... We think often, I was just, of course, for many of us, probably the first place we go is Johnny Erickson Tata. Quadriplegic, constant pain, cancer that just came back. She would talk often about her hope of heaven and how she looks forward to this restored body. What helps her to carry on and be faithful and those who are like her? What helps a a parent or someone who carries on who, who in war, who lost a limb and so on? It is knowing that this body will be restored, that this isn't it. This is only temporary. This is only temporary. We will have a body in the resurrection full of health and vitality and strength, matched with joyful, unbroken fellowship with God. Paul said, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. So for those who struggle with these kind of difficulties, there is a great hope, a great anticipation of the resurrection. Every ailment, every hurt will be done away with. And health and vitality and holiness will await us. There's a comfort in death when we think of eschatology. Death is a constant reminder that the world is still under the curse and is not yet what it will be. You'll remember Paul's words. It's the last enemy in 1 Corinthians 15 to be defeated. And it is an enemy. And even we as believers who have the the first fruits of the age to come, who have experienced regeneration and new life, who are in union with Christ, who is the very source of that life by the Spirit, even we groan within ourselves waiting to be done with these bodies who still have the vestiges and the corruption of sin with us. 
And so death reminds us that it's not yet, things aren't yet what they will be. And our grasp of the end of the story meets us then at the point of our deepest pain, our most devastating losses of those we love, even as we consider our own mortality. You think of those who have the death of a child, stillbirths, miscarriages, to disease or maybe the death of a young one through the consequence of sin or some, some kind of calamity. We had in our own family many years ago a family member who was on the way to the hospital to give birth to a healthy little girl. Uh, the umbilical cord got tied around that child's neck and died before they made it to the hospital. Those things happen. They're tragedies. They happen all the time. It's a part of living in a sin-cursed world. What gives people hope? What gives parents hope through that kind of grief and through that kind of pain? It is our understanding of the end. It's our understanding of the temporary nature of this world. Listen to these familiar words. It's from David. You remember through the sin, his sin with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife through a sin of adultery, through a sin of murder, God judged him by taking the life of the child that was the product of that ungodly union. He said the child would die, and so the child was born and then struck with an illness. David went and prayed and he fasted, and he was seeking mercy from the Lord. Then they came to him and they told him that or they understood, David, through their whispering, that the child had died. It says in verse 20, David arose from the ground. He washed him, this is 2 Samuel 12, anointed himself, changed his clothes, and he came into the house of the Lord, and he worshipped. Child died, David worshipped. And then he came to his own house, and he requested that his food be set before him. And when they were wondering, what is this? Everything seems backwards in your response. David said this, who knows? He wept because he said, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me, the child may live, but now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. David knew that this child was taken away from him. It produced great grief in his life, but that he would one day see that child again. He would one day be with that child in the future. And that's a great comfort to parents who have lost a child. And there's much more that Scripture says about that. But it is a great comfort to know that this child whom I lost, this child whom I will never know and get to see live and grow, is one that has been in the mercy of God, covered under the atonement of Christ, and is in His present forever. It's a comfort. It doesn't change the reality of grief, but it does give hope. One said this, commenting on that passage, the relationship between David and that little child is not ended, but their meeting is not to be in this world. The separation shall be but temporary. And who can conceive of the joy of reunion, reunion never to be broken by separation forevermore? And so he was able to worship in the midst of his loss. Now David understood there it was a direct result of his sin, but even when we don't know in the mysterious working of God's providence, we can have confidence that God is on his throne. He has a purpose. He's accomplishing something, and that is not the end of the story. The end of the story is the resurrection, and there will be a relationship with that child again. There is the death of a loved one. We don't grieve as those without hope. We remember the words of Paul. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Who have no hope. 
Grief is a normal part of this world. Grief is the right response. It is the natural response. It is a righteous response even to the reality of death. I know one made the comment, and I, and I think I would side with them, is that we do have a tendency sometimes in Christian funerals to make it a celebration, a celebration of a life. And there is a reality to that. We certainly do celebrate a life. We celebrate God's work in their life, all that they've uh, all the, the ways that they were a blessing to others and so forth. But there is a, a way too when Solomon says that you go into a house of mourning and that you gain wisdom. There's a mourning as well when we lose someone we love. But we as Christians don't mourn without hope. Why? Because of the resurrection. Because we know the end of the story. We drive by on 25 a graveyard that's uh, called the resurrection or resurrection or something. And it's true. It's true. Every grave will be opened and everyone who belongs to Christ will raise with a body fit to be with him forever and ever and ever. So we're sad, but we're not controlled by that sadness. The sadness is encompassed within our hope and the return of Christ and the resurrection. As a matter of fact, Paul says later in that passage that the dead in Christ will rise first. We will meet them together with the Lord in the air. And he says, there we shall be forever be with the Lord. Those are some of the most precious words. We shall forever be with the Lord. He will come and receive us to himself. And we will have a fellowship and a relationship with those we love that died in the Lord uh, forever. And that's the hope that he gives us. Why does God say at the very end of the revelation of Scripture, why does he say that there will be no more tears, no more death, no more mourning, no more pain? The first things have passed away. We need that word. We should meditate on it. We can't hear this enough. We also, knowing the end, have patience for justice. We have patience for justice. And this is the last one at this point. Justice is a big topic, one we've covered, but God's people understand, so we're not going to go uh, all the way down that, but we understand that justice in the hands of men is often perverted. It fails. It's not what it should be. It's used for nefarious ends, for evil purposes. But in the hands of God, it will find its perfect execution in this world against all who are outside of Christ and for all who are in Christ. Revelation 19, 1 through 2 says this in this final chapter that's declaring the judgment of God on the world and its final expression of rebellion against Christ, God's anointed, as was anticipated in Psalm chapter 2, in the mounted rebellion of a world system under the leadership of the Antichrist, who is the very embodiment of of Satan's purposes on earth and his evil. He says this, After these things I heard, John did, After these things I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous for he has judged the great harlot who is corrupt, who was corrupting the earth with her immorality and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. So when we look at the rise of evil, we go and we see justice is perverted. When we see what is right not being upheld, we can have confidence it will be one day. It will be one day. Why do we have that confidence? Because God's told us the end of the story. He's told us the end of the story. So how is our spirituality shaped by that? We don't lose hope. We're not in despair. We're not, we're not moping around as though everything is lost. We're not moping around as if there's no answer to the injustices we see. We hate them, but we know it will be settled. It will be reconciled. Notice the second point. This is that eschatology then is a motivation for holiness. Eschatology is a motivation for our holiness. 
as I mentioned before, we've all known those who have a fascination. I remember working on a job for years and there were a few people there who just were fascinated by all this stuff with eschatology. And you know the one thing I noticed uh, about their life with all the fascination about eschatology and they just love to try to get into these conversations. Uh, the one thing I noticed often was there was a distinct lack of holiness in their life. And, and so we would have discussions about that. But nonetheless, Peter addresses that directly in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says this. We'll come back to this. Let me mention this. He says, therefore, beloved, or he says, but according to his promise, we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He says, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. The point is, is that eschatology, as we think about the end of all things, as we think about the end of this world, it's not just merely for our curiosity and, and, and fascination. It is so that we would be holy, so that we would live holy lives, so that we would live consistent with the world that is to come. That's the point. Let me just give you a few notes on this. Our end is to be without sin. These are some of the most amazing words in Scripture. If you are a Christian and you've come to understand your sin, you've come to understand the corruption, and the more you grow as a Christian, you don't grow to see more and more of your righteousness. You grow more and more to appreciate Christ's righteousness because you see your corruption. You see how evil you really are. You're like, there's always new depths of our sin that we discover as we grow in Christ. And so we, when we hear these words, the more mature you are, then the more amazing these words will be he says in Ephesians 1 4 we will be holy and blameless before him holy and blameless before him and Jude he says this to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy this is an infinitely holy God I mean, it's a holiness we can't even fathom. He's of an infinite majesty and glory and perfection that we can't even begin to get the fringes of the ways. We can't even understand our universe. We can't even understand our galaxy or our planet. How much the infinite God of whom that is nothing, who is perfectly holy, who, con who contracted the plan from his eternal purposes to redeem a people, to make a creation that he could participate in so he could redeem it and bring it near to himself. And that he would take us, wicked as we are, as sinful as we are, as corrupted as we are, and say that in Christ we'll be able to stand in the presence of his infinite, majestic holiness and glory, and, he'll be, and we'll be blameless. Blameless? Let that word seek in. God counts you blameless in Christ. We are not blameless. Christ is blameless, and we stand in him, and that's the glory of the gospel. He's promised us that we will be like him. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. This reality, the reality of knowing that the end of our salvation, the very end of our salvation is that we would be a people holy and blameless before him should be to us a motivation to live and pursue that holiness now. John says, everyone who has his hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. This is the already not yet. We already have, as I mentioned, the down payment. We already have the first fruits. We already have the Holy Spirit. We're already regenerated. We're already in union with Christ. But we're not yet in full possession of everything that God has accomplished for us. And he's promised we're not. And so we groan within ourselves. We have sin. If you are a Christian, then one of your greatest anticipations about heaven is what? 
Well, to be with Christ and to be without sin. Don't you want to worship Christ if you know him now? Don't you want to serve him and live for him? Don't you want to have unbroken fellowship with him? And that, that's not our reality. It's not. As a matter of fact, we rather, we rather just keep being thankful for those little glimpses that we get every now and then that seem to go away as fast as they came. And we're frustrated and we hate it and we see our sin and we see that we don't even hate our sin as we ought to hate our sin. And some of our prayers are make me even hate my sin like I should hate my sin. But we have this hope. We have this hope is that one day we will see him as he is. We will be like him. And John says, as we fix our hope on this, on this future day, on this future reality, on this future realities of our sins forgiven, of us knowing within ourselves a perfect purity and holiness so that when we are conformed to the body of his glory that means that there will not even be the possibility of a sinful thought a sinful attitude a sinful action and never the fear of that changing either because it comes to christ it's not on us that's a glory that helps us to have encouragement and meditating on this on our end is a major force in pursuing holiness and seeking god to reveal that to us so that we would pursue it with more energy. Knowing this, our accountability. This is how the end helps us fight sin, knowing our accountability. You know, it makes a difference when we know we have to account for our actions, doesn't it? It makes a difference when we know we have to account for our actions. This is heightened when the one we give an account to is the resurrected God-man, our Savior, our Lord, the one who loved us, who loves us, and will love us to the uttermost for all eternity. As we contemplate his love for us and his grace for us, as we contemplate his mercy to us, as we contemplate his mercy to us as the one who is all glorious, all holiness, all majestic, infinite in his glory, and yet he loves us. He loves us to the uttermost. And we know that we're gonna then have to stand before him and give an account for our lives who has loved us. Then that affects how we view sin. That affects how we view this world. Paul says this, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We looked at it in Romans 14. Why do you judge your brother? Why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God so that each one of us will give an account of himself to God. That means every secret thought, every secret act, every obvious act. Everything, we'll give an account to God. Now, that doesn't mean, let me just make a note here, that each individual from all eternity is gonna go moment by moment, second by second. It means when God looks at the totality of our lives, when God looks at the wholeness of our lives, the fullness of our lives, the direction of our lives, we give an account to it and we ask ourselves, will it be found faithful or will it be found distracted by everything that's worthless and temporary? And so if we know that and we consider that, then it affects how we pursue holiness in this life. Waiting to see our Savior, again, affects our holiness. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says this, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Who can understand that? Who can understand the fullness of what that means? We will stand face to face and see Christ face to face. We will... We will be with him in his presence. As we think about that, as we consider that, as we consider what it would be like to see Christ coming in the glory of the Father and of his own glory and of the holy angels and coming on the clouds to establish his kingdom on earth, if we could put ourselves in that moment, what would we think of our lives right now when it has to go before him? You know, when we consider that, when we consider that he calls us to himself and to see him face to face, 
This should motivate us to live holy and to have that attitude of Paul who says, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let me just note here, it sets the priority of spiritual disciplines. It spreads the priority of spiritual disciplines. One is rightly noted, our hopes determine our habits. Our hopes determine our habits. That's a great statement. It's pithy and it captures it. It's not unlike what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He said this, and I'll just read it to you. Bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. You'll have blessing here. You'll have fellowship with God here. You'll have God's power and ministry here. You'll have a clean conscience here. You'll have greater worship here. But really, really the outcome is what it will produce in the world life to come when we're with him. And so he says this later in verse 10. Because we have fixed our hope on the living God. That's at the heart of it. We fixed our hope on the living God. What we long for and what we set our desires on will determine the priorities that we establish in our lives. It's that simple. What we have our desires set on, what our hopes are set on, will determine what we do with our time. If we want to make money, we will discipline ourselves in doing what it takes to be financially successful. We'll put in all the extra hours, we'll take the extra jobs, we'll get the education, we'll do everything that we need to do to make money. If we want to be a musician, we'll discipline ourselves to practice regularly, to make the sacrifices of spending hours in front of the instrument and learning drills and skills and practicing and practicing until we've mastered that particular thing. If we have as our only ambition none of those things, but only ease and comfort, then we'll order our lives in such a way that pursues that goal, that everything will be easy, entertaining, passive. We do what we want to do what we hope for, what we really want. And so in the same way, if our hearts and our minds have been awakened to the glory of God, to taste our sin and his forgiving grace, to get a glimpse of his majesty and beauty, if we've been made to hope in being with him, then we will set that as the priority of our lives. Indeed, it's something that is necessary to our souls and to our happiness and to our good. We will want to be with him. And the disciplines that we pursue will nourish and foster a greater knowledge of him. We'll want to spend time in prayer. It won't be an odd thing to say, hey, I'm not going to do one thing that would be natural to do and not even a sinful thing so that I can actually go and spend time with God in prayer. I can actually be alone with God. It means that we would set as our priority to say, I actually want to open my Bible and read it because that's where I meet with God and I learn of him. It means that I'll want to actually do works of service, that I'll want to take time to meditate on who he is. And boy, do we struggle with that one in our culture. And I raise my hand to that as well, to all of these things, believe me. It's a struggle, but, it, but the struggle determines what really is most passionate in our lives. Are we pursuing what is commonly known as spiritual disciplines, those ways that we order our lives that will cause us to increase in our knowledge of God and our love for Christ? And are useful to this to him in this world. That's essentially what they are. And so if we have our hope set on the things to come, then our lives will reflect that. That we'll want to know the one who has saved us. It means this, as the last one under this, that it shapes what we value then. It shapes what we value. Eschatology shapes what we value. There are relative senses of value. In other words, we have value, we put different value on different things, some lesser, some more important, and everything in between. 
But knowing the end establishes the criteria for the ultimate things that we value in our lives. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Some value this world so much that many in our culture don't think beyond retirement. The whole direction of their life is to retirement and to be as comfortable as possibly can be. Again, these things aren't evil in and of themselves. But when they become the ultimate priority, then it means as Christians there's something skewed in our heart. Some get a disease and will spend all of their money and the inheritance of their children and all of their wealth to live a few more months or a year. Is that wise? From an eternal perspective? If we understand the end and we understand the resurrection? I don't know, that's questionable. Speaking about the effect of the, in, the affluence of the West, one said this, our knowledge and experience of God are so weak and our desire for the pleasures of the present so strong that we find it almost impossible to imagine that life with God in the world to come could be incomparably better than what we hope to experience in this world. Particularly in our Western culture, we kind of think that life in heaven is going to be kind of like this, but a little better. So, I mean, I kind of want to be there because I want more of what's better. But we're looking at in terms of the ease and the comforts and the wealth and the pleasures of this world rather than the pleasures that we have in Christ through self-denial, through faith, through obedience, through trust. So Christian spirituality, Christian reality, Christian maturity is marked by an ever-loosening grip on this world. And many of you know exactly what I mean. The more you grow as a Christian, the stranger you feel in this world. You just feel strange, actually. You don't really relate to it. You don't connect to things as much. Things that brought you joy when you were a teenager just don't really do that anymore, not just because of the hardships of life, but because you don't value those things with the same value. If you're growing in Christ, you value to be with Christ. You value to be with him. You value to not sin. You value to worship him with a whole heart. And you want to serve him in this world. So Christian maturity is marked by an ever-loosening grip on this world. The world is less and less attractive Less and less, we feel less and less at home here and more and more at home in the world to come. And so we long for it and we say, come Lord Jesus, come. Why? Because that's what my heart has been created for. That's what I want. Those are the deepest longings of my heart. You know, a new house, a new car, a new boat or whatever is nice, but it doesn't bring me ultimate satisfaction. I'm thankful for them, but I don't pursue them. Let's look thirdly and we'll look at these quickly. Eschatology is a bedrock then of our endurance. So the last thing then shapes our holiness. It shapes the things that we pursue. It gives us endurance as well. And let me mention just a few things here. When we think of the end, when we understand the end, it gives us endurance in the loss in whatever we lose for the sake of the gospel. Let me give you one passage. You'll remember the rich young ruler came to Jesus. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, you know, what does it say? You keep the commandments. And he's like, I've done all of that. And Jesus says, oh, okay, well, one more thing, right? Now he's going to go to the first table of the law. And he says, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. Why is that the first table? He's saying, because you really don't love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You love these things. You love your position. You didn't really do the other ones perfectly, but let's just let that go. Let's get down to what you really love. And he says, sell everything then. And come follow me. And he goes, I can't do that. I can't do that. That's too much. That's a sacrifice too great. And here the disciples were looking at that and they're amazed. They thought, well, if anybody was blessed by God, it's this rich young ruler. And now he's leaving rejected and rejecting the Messiah. And yet here they are, this ragtag group following Christ. And so Peter says to him in verse 27, behold, we've left everything and we followed you. What then will there be for us? 
And Jesus said to him, I say to you, you have followed me in the regeneration. When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. I think it was Luke who added, in this life and in the life to come. You've not left anything that God will not repay beyond your wildest imaginations. What enables somebody to lose family relationships, friendships, job opportunities, property, and things like that to follow Christ? It is because they know the coming kingdom. It is because they count their life here as not worthy to be fought for, but they count life in Christ as worthy to lose everything for He had said early in Matthew chapter 10, you know what? The enemies are going to be in your own household when you come to Christ. You're going to be betrayed by your own family members. The history of the church has examples of that. He says, but look, if you love them more than me, you're not worthy of me and you're not worthy of my kingdom. But if you are, if you are one who's had your eyes open to the glory of salvation, you'll lose those things. Why? Because there's something better. There's something better in Christ. You'll receive even more. In fact, you'll gain far more than you ever could think of giving up in persecution knowing the end is what helps people to persevere then in persecution not only the loss of relationships and opportunities but when our very lives are threatened many passages let me leave give you one he speaks in hebrews chapter 10 of those who were being afflicted those who were being pressured in many ways and even through the physical things that they suffered. And he's reminding them that it's worth it. It's worth it. And he says, as a matter of fact, let me read it to you. He says this, Do not, in verse 35, throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Not in this life. It doesn't mean things are going to get better here. It doesn't mean just hold on for another year and it's all going to be restored. No, it means all the way to the end of your life you may be suffering this. He says, you have, in verse 36, he says, but don't throw it away for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. And then he goes into the great chapter by faith. How can you endure it is by faith taking in this promise, bringing it into my reality right now and standing on that and living in accordance with that. And then he gives this whole long list beginning all the way with uh, the guard or Enoch all the way down, excuse me, with Abel, all the way up to the last Old Testament saints. And he says they lived by faith. They never received the promise, but they were looking for a city that was to come. They were looking for something else and by faith they held on and they endured. Why? Because they knew the end. They knew the end. They knew the end of the promises of God. And in fact, it is this understanding of the end that helps God's people to endure all things. Listen to the words of Paul. He says to Timothy in chapter 4, Be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of the evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I'm being poured out as a drink offering. The time for my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness with the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but all who have loved his appearing. So don't be timid, Timothy. Don't be compromised. Don't neglect the gift that is in you, but persevere to the end. Why? Because you will receive a crown of righteousness. Paul knew what it was like to be attacked from false teachers, experience betrayal from friends, 
to be persecuted from his own government and countrymen, to be disappointed in ministry, to know the uncertainties of life, and to have times of abundance and times of want. He knew everything. He knew what that was like. And yet he says, I fought the good fight of faith. Why? Because laid up for me is something better. I have need, we have need of endurance. And we have need of endurance because we know the end of the story. And with that, let me just briefly mention this last point. And the last one is this. Eschatology, then, is a catalyst for true wisdom. Eschatology is a catalyst for true wisdom. We're familiar with that statement by Jim Elliott. Some of you all know Jim Elliott. He was a ministry, uh, ministry. He was a missionary, and he was killed by those he went to serve. And he said this, uh, him and, and some other friends, but he said this, he is no fool to lose what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Right? We're familiar with that statement. It's a great statement. He is no fool to lose what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And he knew what it was like. He lost his life. He made many sacrifices before that. But here's what that emphasizes is this. To live wisely is to live according to reality. Really. It's to live according to reality. To apply truth effectively to life in a way that we make those decisions that will prove to bring the best and most beneficial outcome in our lives to the glory of God and our eternal good. That's wisdom. That's fearing God. What will bring the most good in my life and the most glory to God? And that is to live wisely. To live wisely is to live according to reality. It is to live according to God's word who's told us what reality is. He's told us what the end is like. So to be spiritually shaped by the end instructs us then to live and respond to Christ in light of what is to come. What is to come? Judgment and salvation. That's what's to come. Judgment and salvation. So the most significant decision of wisdom in light of the end is first then to repent and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's wisdom. Paul knew his family that, and the scriptures they taught him that led him to the wisdom of salvation. That's the most wise decision, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin and to be reconciled with God. You know the words of the Lord Jesus, for what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What has he gained in the end? What would one give in the end? What would Bill Gates give in the end with all of his earthly glory, with all of his wealth, with beautiful houses and vacations and everything nice? Nothing is withheld from him. Anything he wants or any of those wealthy, he has it as his fingertips. Nothing would be denied to him here. And yet what will all of that mean when standing before the Holy Christ and the eternal God? Do you think that one person who has all of the blessings of this world will in that moment stand and go, I made a good choice. I'm ready for hell. People talk that way. I'll be with my friends in hell. We'll be partying in hell. We'll be doing all these things in hell. No, you won't. No, we won't. And so understanding the end and realizing that there's only two ends, there's judgment and salvation, gives us wisdom and it begins with choosing Christ, with turning to Christ, with believing in Christ. We focused on the encouragement and blessing in the end for believers. However, it is equally true that eternal destruction and misery, sorrow, regret, shame, anger, fear, and never-ending despair awaits those who reject the grace offered in Jesus Christ. That's reality. That's reality who choose this world and choose rather to die in their sin. Mark 9, Jesus warned, it is better to enter into life crippled, lame, with one eye than to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. 
In short, it's better to deal with sin now and be willing to part with sin now and to seek Christ no matter what it costs you here. You will gain in the end. Jesus warns to the Apostle John in Revelation 21.8 and Revelation 21 and 22 is the great wonders and the glories of the eternal state. And yet twice, and once in 21 and uh, twice in chapter 21, he gives this warning. This is in 21.8 after describing the glories. He says, but for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. It's simply to say this in summary that everyone who is not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, everyone who stands in their own righteousness and not his has that as their end. And so wisdom considers that. So that it's foolish to choose this world in the temporary safety, the temporary pleasures, the temporary worldly honor, all that will perish and are destined to perish. And choose that instead of eternal joy with Christ. To choose eternal misery. However, so that's the first decision. If you don't know Christ, if you're living for yourself, if you're living with all of the, the happiness and the pleasures of this world and you're not living for Christ, you're not daily dealing with your sin, you're not daily see, loving Christ, if that is not the reality in your life, then this is the decision before you. Are you living wisely? Do you believe the end? However, for those who trust in Christ, who have lost the self-rule of our lives and live consistently with the reality of who God is, the reality of sin and the greater, greater reality of his grace, um, then we live in hope. It's the reality that caused the martyrs to gladly give their lives in hope of a better resurrection, the writer of Hebrews says. It's the reality that causes everyone who has truly trusted Christ to be willing to give up everything to gain forgiveness, a life of hope, holiness, endurance, and wisdom. Let me end with these words, and then we'll pray. I already started to read them, but let me read the fuller section here in 2 Peter chapter 3. Now he says this, he says others are going to be mocking. Eh, you Christians, you bunch of nuts. You people who believe in some stupid book and are neglecting all of the things that are here and you'd even suffer for it. Where is God's judgment? Where is God's judgment? And Paul, Peter reminds us that, yep, they said that when, right before the flood came as well. And they're saying that right before God's judgment by fire comes. But he says then in verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burned up. Let me just stop. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you honestly believe that? Do I honestly believe that? He goes on in verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It does not dwell here, beloved. Righteousness is not going to be found here. That environment is not going to be found here. As in fact, everything that is against righteousness and what is good and beautiful. But in the world to come, it's a place where righteousness dwells. And get this, only righteousness dwells. Only righteousness dwells. And he says, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. That's the way that we live as Christians. And that is a spirituality in general of eschatology. 
That's the way the end should shape us. It gives us hope against all the adversities of life. It gives us a strength and motivation for holiness as we seek to live for him consistent with who we are. It gives us endurance in all of the suffering that may come because of the gospel. And it assures us that we can live wisely if we live in light of the things to come. Let me pray and then John will come and lead us in a closing hymn. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Help us, Lord, as wonderful as these things are, as much as we see them and know them, we know in our hearts we don't fully get it. We see it so little. And we ask you to be so gracious to us, to show us the glories of our salvation, we who know you, to show us the wonders of Christ, that we would live and walk in the light as you are in the light, that we would be diligent to be found by you, spotless and blameless, living in peace and pursuing righteousness. Encourage our hearts, Lord. We do not know what you have designed for each of our individual lives, but we want to be found faithful. And we want to have such a sight of the wonders of our salvation that we would gladly lose whatever you call us to give up to gain Christ. And Lord, for those here who are still darkened and blinded, following the course of this world, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and are by nature children of wrath, I pray that you would show them. Show them the choice that lies before them, and would you, by the gracious work of your Spirit in our hearts, draw them to Christ to know forgiveness. And these things we ask and we pray in the name of him who died, who rose again for us, who is now interceding for us, and will return for his church. The name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.